Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. The text for the message today is from the reading of the Mark that we just heard a few moments ago. We begin with a word of prayer. Almighty God, we give you thanks that you have gathered us to hear your word and receive your gifts this day. And Lord, we come to you today understanding that you call us to hard things, Lord, and, and that trusting your Son can be a difficult thing for us at times. And yet, Lord, we pray that you would grant us your Holy Spirit so that our hearts would be set to obey and to follow you faithfully all of our days. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I don't want to start off sounding too blasphemous this morning, and that's always kind of a fun way to start a sermon. Hey, you might sound blasphemous here this morning. I don't want to sound too blasphemous here this morning, but as I read the gospel lesson for today, uh, it strikes me that Jesus, he may not have made a very good leader. At least, let me qualify that, at least not a very good leader by our 21st century best-selling books at Barnes & Noble leadership manuals uh, that we have given to us in our world these days. I don't know how well Jesus would have done in organizing sort of a, a successful business in our day and age. Because if you're going to have a successful business, if you're going to have uh, uh, success and become a great leader in this world, you need followers, right? You need people to get behind you. You need people to buy into you and into your ideas and into your products. And there's a lot of ways you can get people to do this. There's a lot of ways to get people to buy into you. And there's books upon books. There's a whole cottage industry of books trying to tell you how to be a great leader and how to get people to buy into you. Consider today uh, the gold standard of all of these books. A book that is written uh, a number of decades ago by one Dale Carnegie entitled How to Win Friends and Influence People. Anybody read How to Win Friends and Influence People? See, I haven't. That's why I have no friends and nobody listens to me. But here we are. Uh, nonetheless, I've never read that book, though I did see a blog recently, which is just as good, I'm sure, uh, that gave us a number of principles from that book that still apply and are very effective even today. Listen to the things it said. Here's, here's a few points you should take with you if you want to win friends and influence people and be a great leader. Carnegie says, don't criticize, condemn, or complain. Be generous with praise. Remember their name. That's a good one. Know the value of charm. Have others believe your conclusion is their own. Make people feel important. That's good. Those are all very good suggestions and ideas uh, if you want people to buy into you. Those are good tactics to use if you want people to get behind you. But what's interesting to me today uh, is that Jesus just seems to ignore all of them, almost practically work against them. Because you'll see Jesus isn't interested in your buy-in. He's come to save sinners. He's not come to win friends and influence people. He's arrived to establish the kingdom of God here on earth, whether people want him to do it or not. And he's not going to do it by establishing some successful business plan based upon his charismatic personality that's going to get all the Jewish leadership sort of swept off their feet and caught up in the wave of Jesus. No, he's come literally to be crucified by those very people. Like, I look at the gospel today and I think, boy, Jesus didn't read Carnegie at all. 
mean, just look at how Jesus tells his disciples today about his mission. He does it in a, a very interesting region, a place called Caesarea Philippi, which is really like the northernmost place Jews would ever go in those days, Caesarea Philippi. And, and Caesarea Philippi is interesting for a whole lot of reasons. Uh, but one of them is uh, that King Herod, we all remember Herod, right? King Herod had built a temple there to Caesar Augustus. That is Herod, and I mean Herod read Carnegie, you want to win friends and influence people? You build a temple to them, and then they begin to like you a little bit more. You know, people worship you because of me, uh, Herod could say. So Herod builds this temple so people would go there and literally worship Caesar. And in that region, there you have the Son of God talking to his disciples about who people think that he is. Now, there is a lot of confusion in those days about who Jesus is, and so Jesus is getting all of this information. He's kind of figuring out what the buzz is about Jesus in that time, and then he turns to his disciples and asks them, really, the most important question anyone could ever be asked. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter takes out his notes and sees that if you want to sort of make it in the world, you need to, what is it here? Uh, compliment people, make people feel good about themselves. He says to Jesus, you are the Christ. And it's the right answer. It's a good answer. Peter's pretty proud of his answer. He starts sort of polishing off his nameplate as he's getting ready to put it on the door uh, of his corner office there in the kingdom of heaven. Does Jesus, as he gives this answer to Jesus, Jesus responds to Peter, in a way that Peter just can't seem to get behind. Mark writes, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And I like this last part. And he said this plainly. Now Carnegie says you want other people to believe that uh, their conclusion, your conclusions are their own. But Peter hears this, and he's like, no, 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 Jesus. That's not my conclusion. That's not what I was saying. You're misunderstanding me here. And the text tells us Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Because Peter can't get behind the idea of a betrayed, suffering Messiah. And both of those are very key terms here, betrayed and suffering. I mean, it's one thing if Jesus is going to suffer and sort of even die a martyr's death. We can all kind of honor a martyr and feel sort of like they had a noble way of dying. But Jesus isn't talking about that. Jesus is talking about being rejected by the very people that he needs to have behind him if he's going to be a great leader there in Jerusalem. Commenting on this passage, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, and it's a very insightful statement. He says, uh, had Jesus only suffered, he might still have been applauded as the Messiah. All the sympathy and the admiration of the world might have been focused on his passion. But in the passion, Jesus is a rejected Messiah. And his rejection robs the passion of its halo of glory. It must be a passion without honor. And a passion without honor is not something Peter is interested in getting behind. Peter doesn't want to follow that lead, so Peter does something very interesting here. He decides to take matters into his own hands. He decides that he's now going to get out in front of Jesus. He's going to correct Jesus' misguided aims and lead Jesus in a better direction. And of course, what we mean by better direction here is one that is more suited to Peter's wants, Peter's desires, Peter's hopes, and Peter's dreams. And it strikes me today that you and I are very much like Peter. Because we want a Jesus 
that we can get behind, and if we can't get behind him, then we can get him behind us. We want a Jesus who has the same goals and the same hopes and the same dreams that we do, or if he doesn't have them, at least he serves ours. We want a Jesus who looks like us, who acts like us, who votes like us. We want a Jesus who will give us success and help us fulfill the American dream. Because that's the kind of Jesus we can get behind, or better said, the kind of Jesus we can get behind us. So we understand Peter's rebuke today. Then you find Jesus looking back at Peter. And Mark is very interesting here because he points out how Jesus looks at Peter and then he looks at all the other disciples who are literally thinking the same stuff, which we could probably include ourselves in that category. Jesus looks out on all of us and says this simply today, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. I mean, right there, we're we're just taking out the pages of Carnegie and burning them up, aren't we? Don't criticize, so much for that. Be generous with praise, not so much. Remember their name? Peter's like, my name's not Satan, it's Peter. What did he call me that for? Charismatic? Yeah, not so much. Jesus isn't looking to win over anyone. He is simply saying this, look, I have a mission to fulfill, and I have a cross to go die on. And if you want to take me away from the cross, if you want to remove me from the cross, if you want to conceive of me without the cross, then you are not on the side of God, but on the side of Satan. And your mind is on the things of man, and you're not wanting the thing that God wants. And then, if that's not difficult enough, he ratchets the whole thing up more. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Let that one sink in for a minute deny himself and take up his cross and follow me for whoever whoever would save his life will lose it whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul for what can a man give in return for his soul for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the son of man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus knows nothing of the value of charm. So what are we to do with all of this? What are we to do with a Jesus who who calls names and promises crosses and suffering and announces that he's here to die? Has Jesus really no concept of what we want? Has he no concept of the American dream? Doesn't he know what makes for the good life? And doesn't, want he, doesn't he want to sort of woo me in and get me behind him? This is why I say to you today, I don't think Jesus would have made a very good leadership businessman in our world. But I can tell you this much. He is an amazing Lord. One who isn't all that concerned with your buy-in, but who loves you more than you can possibly imagine. Who knows whether you want to hear it or not that so often your hopes and dreams are the very things that get in the way of your faith. And he's the only one to tell you the truth about it. And he's the only one to tell you the truth that following him means ultimately bearing a cross. It means suffering for his sake, learning to pray in angst over the sin of the world that you see all around you and living in hope against hope that someday, somehow, all of these things are going to be made right. 
It means that you follow him even when there is an assault on your life. An assault that comes from the world, the devil, and our flesh. Whether it be against our conscience, whether that assault be against our faith, or in extreme cases, as we see in many places throughout the world, when this cross takes the form of actual physical persecution. And as all of this may come your way, Jesus is the only one who loves you enough to tell you the truth about it. But here's why he is an amazing Lord, and actually what makes Jesus the most marvelous leader we can possibly imagine. He doesn't just tell you and warn you about all the bad things that are going on in the world and all the evils that go on and all the crosses that have to be borne. Jesus is the sort of one, the sort of leader who runs into the battle ahead of us so that he might win it for us. And that's what makes for a great leader. He's one who goes into the battle and suffers in a deeper and far more profound way than you ever will. For he not only suffered at the hands of the religious leaders, he went to that cross and endured the wrath of God for your sake to pay for all of your sins so that you stand forgiven. He, uh, to have him as Lord means that, you ha- that he has uh, redeemed you with his own precious blood, suffered the cross for your sake, and done all of this so that he might prepare for you an eternity full of joy and love and rest Martin Luther says it this way beautifully in the large catechism it means that he has brought you back from the devil to God from death to life from sin to righteousness and he keeps you there he just wants you to understand that that all comes by means of a cross see Jesus is no mere leader interested in winning friends and influencing people hoping that you'll get behind him he's interested in taking up his cross and dying for you and for your salvation he's no mere leader he is your gracious savior and he is your gracious lord amen let us pray almighty god we give you thanks that you sent your your son jesus to die for us that he led the way to the cross where he endured the scorn of the world and suffered your wrath for our sake. We pray, O Lord, that you would teach us to take up our cross and follow, knowing that through the cross we arrive finally at the resurrection. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.